0: Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 102 for February the 12th, 2013. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and Paul Ducklin's back this week. Welcome back, Paul.
1: Hello, Chester, from a grey and dreary North Sydney.
0: Well, we have something in common then, because, uh, well, it's Vancouver winter time, so I won't go any further than that. Um, it's not on the official agenda today, but uh, we we can uh, celebrate the discovery of a new prime. I know you are quite keen on that, wrote a great story
1: on Naked Security about it. Oh, I love my big prime numbers, Chester. And it's a Mersenne prime, one of the form 2 to the power p minus 1. 17,425,170 decimal digits. The most common, by the way, is 3. The least common is 5. They're statistically evenly distributed which is amazing when you think that in binary, the number consists entirely of ones, not a zero in sight. Uh, but we shan't mention it. It's not really important to the rest of the show.
0: While the prime number is really interesting, most people that are uh, subscribing to the chat chat are, are here for the security news. So I'm going to kick right off with uh, the, the breaking story here of Microsoft and Symantec getting together to take down the Bametal botnet. And, you know, we'll talk about the the information on it in a second. But I think what's really interesting is the effort that the private sector has been putting into cooperating and gathering all the information necessary to get legal action taken against some of these botnet operators. And, And Microsoft's been the biggest proponent of this. I mean, Facebook's done some of it as well. But I think this is really, really good progress. I mean, unfortunately, not everyone has the lawyers and the financial resources of Microsoft to put into fighting these battles. But it it really is making a big difference, I think, in the community and sending a message to the bad guys. I mean, uh, according to the article on Naked Security that uh, Graham wrote, you know, these guys were netting like a million dollars a year on this stuff. Uh, What's
1: your take on, you know, the private sector helping law enforcement like this? I think it's a great idea, Chester. It's important to remember, of course, that we can't steam in Legally, morally, ethically, or even technically, it's just not possible for us to steam in and magically fix everybody's computer. So, unfortunately, it doesn't actually deal with disinfecting the people who are inadvertently contributing to the botnet. But since most botnets rely on some centralized or semi centralized command and control infrastructure, if you can nobble some of those servers, in other words, you get the court to say, look, those servers are just operating for evil we're going to take their ownership take their ip numbers and give them to someone we trust and that person can then use them to a prevent the bots calling home and b to present a warning to people who do visit to say you know what you probably didn't mean to see this page and if it hadn't been for us taking it over you wouldn't be seeing it you'd actually be contributing to cyber criminality so it's a great way of actually getting in the face of people who are infected and basically trying to de-zombify the internet.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's great as well. And it, it's uh, it's encouraging to see some law enforcement wins. A lot of people complain and they go, well, what's the point? Why should I report this? Why should I do anything about it? And you know, when we gather all the information out there, it's, it's part of the battle that's being fought too, is just the information battle. Uh, you know, I have people I talk to occasionally within federal law enforcement in the US and Canada. And part of the problem is they can't get budget because they don't know what the problem is, because no one's reporting the fact that they've been hacked or that they have malware on their computers and all these things. And the, the scale and scope of the amount of crime out there is enormous. And yet, because we don't have good ways of measuring it, that makes it hard for law enforcement to justify the allocation of budget necessary to, to do a better job of combating it. So I think all these things contribute to a safer Internet. And um, good on Microsoft and Symantec, uh, you are made, made a, the world a
1: safer place for everyone. It is a way of actually getting the message across that an infected computer is hurting you, but it's also putting the rest of the internet at risk. Well,
0: speaking of the internet being at risk, uh, I wrote a story about a flaw in what's known as UPnP, or universal plug-and-play. Researcher H.D. Moore published a paper called Unplug, Don't Play, um, about his research into vulnerabilities in UPnP, but it was actually slightly worse than just the vulnerabilities, of which there were a boatload, and we won't get into the individual vulnerabilities. There were quite a lot of them in all of the most commonly used implementations of UPMP. But the most frightening part was the quantity of devices that had UPMP exposed on the internet side, whether these be printers or scanners or webcams that just happen to be on the open internet with a public IP, which you frequently find in in uh, universities and places like this where everything gets a public IP address. But more than that, were routers
1: that were listening on the outside for these UPnP requests. And the crazy thing, Chester, is that this is not a bug. It's kind of a feature, isn't it? Universal plug-and-play, it's designed to let devices on the internet that would otherwise have to traverse a router or a firewall or NAT or something like that, it's designed to help them find each other and deal with all these hideous complexities that security throws in the way.
0: Let's create an automated way of disabling all my security without me knowing about it every time something decides to chirp a few packets at my firewall. Uh, Conceptually, I just find it a bad idea. Reading from
1: your article, one of the worst ideas ever. (laughs) Yeah, that kind of puts in a nutshell, doesn't it? You know, it's worth reading that article because I think you clarify the issues very concisely. The problem is that, as I understand it, in many routers, they have an option that let you go in with the web UI, it all looks very easy, you click the button, you turn it off, and you think, okay, you stand down from Peace alert, and it doesn't. Or it turns it off on the inside, so where it would be safe to have plug and play, so you can find your printers and scanners automatically, that no longer works, which is mildly inconvenient, But on the outside, the bad guys can still wander around and find out what's inside your network, even though when you ask your router, are you doing this, it says no. That's the kind of state of play for some people, isn't it? So on this router front, you know, if you've got UPnP, what to do?
0: Well, uh, I think, you know, folks should uh, run one of the test suites out there to see if their router is vulnerable. And if it is, uh, pressure their vendor for a patch. Uh personally, you know, my approach to this problem for years now has been to buy a router that's compatible with a, a Linux distribution. I can you know load on it myself, like DDWRT or OpenWRT, and there there's several uh, tomato router other things out there. And that way I truly have control. I mean it's open source code, I can do what I like with it, I can make sure that things are on or off or disable them or enable them manually. But for folks that aren't that sophisticated, uh, all you can do is pressure your vendor for a fix if you're vulnerable or I guess, uh, turf the router and buy another one.
1: It's probably worth saying for those people who are a little bit afraid of reflashing their router and running Linux, uh, it's probably worth reminding people that many, if not most, routers these days actually run Linux internally anyway, so you're probably doing that whether you know it or not, and that you don't have to be an open source guru or a Linux boffin to be able to do it. I use OpenWRT, very, very easy to install, uh, provided your router is supported, and there's a very long list that are. By reflashing my router, I haven't had to become a Linux guru. I'm just simply choosing different software to run on it. And as you say, it can save the bacon.
0: So continuing with keeping ourselves secure, we have to make sure we keep our software patched and up to date as well. Uh, this week, Adobe released an emergency fix for their ubiquitous flash player
1: software. A patch Thursday, if you will.
0: Yeah. And and in particular, this one was interesting because Adobe pointed out uh, in their advisory that they were aware of it being used in attacks against Mac users independently of Windows users. So it wasn't a theoretical, hey, Macs are also vulnerable. It was a We have seen this being used actively targeting Apple users.
1: Yes, we always get into trouble when we say to Mac users, you know, you're perhaps not as invulnerable as you might think. And to be fair, many Mac users, and and probably even Apple themselves, have kind of relaxed a bit from this holier-than-thou attitude. We don't see those, I'm a PC, I'm a Mac ads anymore, which sort of painted a a, a bit of an unfair picture of security differences between the two operating systems. Certainly, if anyone is in any doubt as to whether the crooks think that there's money to be made out of Mac users, this latest Adobe patch really is the proof of the pudding.
0: Yeah, and I, I think uh, folks that are concerned and want to make sure they're up to date, they can go to get.adobe.com slash Flash Player for the latest version uh, to install on their given operating system and in the article on Naked Security you link to their about page which lets you check your version as well so just check out Naked Security type in flash and you'll you'll find the top story there so there was a bit of a kerfuffle this week when some news broke about vulnerabilities in TLS the protocol used to secure many of our web and email transactions on the internet um rather than folks kind of panic about this uh I thought I'd turn to you you're a bit more of a cryptographic expert than most of us can you boil down what is this lucky 13? And do we need to be afraid about our online
1: banking being insecure now? I won't try and explain the cryptography of it. I'll just mention that this gives you some idea of how cryptographers think when they look at how code has been implemented. Now, most of us might look at code and go, you know what? Gosh, I can make this three times quicker, 10 times quicker. I can get 18 frames per second in my game instead of 13. And efficiency, the faster you can finish stuff, generally is better. The problem in cryptographic solutions is that there are things that you want to do that need to be efficient but if varying the input slightly can cause the algorithm as you've implemented it to run at a different speed to take a different time you may be able to guess information that's actually inside the encrypted data by fiddling with the already encrypted content the researchers discovered that they could provoke a response from the server in a measurably different time, assuming they were on the same LAN segment, and therefore they could begin to guess at individual bytes inside the encrypted data. So that just gives you an idea of how cryptographers think when they see code implemented and they think, hey, these guys have done a really efficient job. Maybe they've been too efficient and we can actually use that to guess, make educated guesses about what's inside the encrypted text and it's a reminder that cryptography is an arms race and the fact that we think that something is secure now does not mean that it's secure in the future
0: well that's that's right i mean this particular attack doesn't allow suddenly everything you send over the internet to be instantly discoverable
1: in, in plain text by by anybody that's around it's not a fire sheep so let, let's make that absolutely clear but it does suggest that One of the most common ways that TLS is used, which is um, using cipher block chaining in the encryption part, actually needs to be discontinued. There are better ways of doing it. If if you're interested, you can go to Naked Security or to the paper itself and read about it. But what it means is we already have in TLS version 1.2, we have a mechanism by which we can do the encryption, which is no less efficient and just so happens, by design, is not vulnerable to this particular attack. So what the researchers are saying, look guys, it's time to move forward to this new feature that we introduced five years ago into TLS 1.2, because we thought it was a good idea, it turns out it is a good idea. The problem is that only about 10 or 11% of servers out there actually support TLS 1.2 properly, which means that we've got the fix, we've had it for five years, we just haven't kind of adopted it yet. So that's really the message out of the whole Lucky 13 business. It's a theoretical vulnerability that could be turned into a practical attack. The solution is simple. Let's move forward in a way that we planned five years ago, and uh, let's not take another 15 years to do it, eh?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's also important to make sure that when we finally get there that we stop you from downgrading it, because that's been another tactic used in the past. It's like, you know, servers that do support TLS 1.2, you can go, oh, no, I only support TLS 1.0 and force a downgrade, which
1: makes, you know, makes you use a vulnerable version again. But that's a whole separate uh, topic. Yes, that's the other side of the lucky 13 coin. Backward compatibility is a great convenience, but it can also be a significant enemy to security. In just the same way that you go, oh, look, in the country where I live, Chip-enabled credit cards and and NFC credit cards are the norm, so the mag stripe, which is easily cloned, has become irrelevant. Except that if the chip's not working, then most credit card machines just fall back to the magnetic strip anyway, which means that the person wielding the credit card actually gets to choose whether the system uses the weakest link. And, you know, that's something we need to leave behind. Doesn't work well.
0: No, no. Well, thanks... For that explanation, Paul, that concludes Sophos Security Chat Chat 102. As always, for the latest podcasts, visit podcasts.sophos.com. You can download all of our podcasts there or via RSS or on iTunes. And until next time, stay secure.